And just to clarify, by the way, I am not sisters with JD's wife. My wife is sisters <laughs> with JD's wife. So, in case there was any confusion at all about that, uh, it's been good uh, to worship together this morning, to be together uh, with several of the men here last night, and just to get to know. Uh, your Harvest Church family has been a pleasure. So thanks for inviting me to be a part of this today. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, we sang to ask the Lord to build his kingdom here and to make some changes, to make some changes in our country and our land. And, and uh, it got me thinking, I heard a story about a man who he wanted to change the world. He, he wanted to see the world be a different place. And so he set out to change the world. And not too long into his efforts, he realized that the world was just far too big for one man uh, to change all of it. So he set his sights on his nation and, and uh, heard that heartfelt uh, cry earlier today about, you know, our country is, is, in, is in trouble more than ever. We we are longing to see the Lord uh, take over. So he set out to change his country, but crooked politicians and special interest groups got in the way and thwarted his efforts. And so he realized he, he alone was not going to be able to change his country. So then he set his sights on his neighborhood, and he wanted to, to impact his neighborhood and change what was going on there. And, and he found that most of his neighbors just shut their windows, and they didn't want to hear what he had to say. So, so he said, well, I'm, I'm going to change my family then. And he worked really hard to change his family. And instead of changing his family, what he found is that by trying to force them to change, his children were rebelling and his wife was threatening divorce and uh, things only got worse there. So finally, that man decided that he would just focus on allowing the Lord to change himself. And when he did that, he found out that he actually changed the world. You and I uh, have a limited ability to affect change outside of us and to influence uh, other people, even though we try to. And every time the Lord brings us back in his word to look at us and to say, I want to change you. And the Lord says to me, I want to change you, Gary, and not the people around you that bug you or that you think need to be changed. And so uh, this morning, we're going to take a look in uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to trust in God's power, trust in God's grace to work in us personally, and at the same time that he is doing that in us, we're going to trust that he's going to be doing that in the people around us in our families. Now, anytime someone brings up the need for change around them in their workplace, in their home, in their neighborhood or whatever, it's really tempting for someone to think to the person next to them and maybe elbow them like, you need to listen up and listen to what God wants to do and to change you. And it may be true that they need change, but God's voice this morning is for each of us personally. How can God change you personally? And that's what he wants to do. Let the person next to you be accountable to God as their authority to let him change them as well. God wants to make changes inside of us. He cares really deeply about the family. And so we're going to take a look at a passage in scripture which walks through family relationships and what God wants to do in each person. I'd like to invite you to pray as we sit under the authority of God's word, under the influence and the teaching of God's Holy Spirit. So let's do that together. Lord, we are so grateful that you care enough to reveal yourself to us, to speak to us, and then give us your word written down for us to be able to to reflect on and to go back and to read again and to search and to study and uh, just to hear so we know, Lord, what your will is. I praise you for your word and praise you for the families that are represented in this room Lord, all of us want our families to be excellent, to be healthy, 
We want our families to be Christ-like and centered on Christ. And so, Lord, I pray today by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to understand and to apply your word. Lord, we pray this in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're going to break this down like the Apostle Paul does into two groups, wives and husbands, children and parents, and take a look at how these groups relate to each other. And the Lord has a key, in fact, a key word for each person represented in those groups. And I can't think of a better place to start than to allow ladies to go first. And since that's what scripture does, that's what we're going to do together. So if you're not in your Bibles already, I'd invite with you uh, to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 22. Ladies get to go first, and there's a key word for each. And so uh, if you are married, uh, if you're married in this room, I want you to raise your hand. If you have the honorable title of wife, okay? So the Lord has a, just wife, sorry, just ladies, okay, sorry. Some of you guys are like, thanks, Pastor, that was really mean. Uh, guys get to go second, all right? So the Lord has a special word for you, all right? Not for your husband in this passage. This is for you husbands. This is not for you to make sure your wives do. This is for them to hear and, and to listen. And so uh, we're going to begin in uh, verse 22. But wives, your key word in, in Scripture for seeing a Christ-like home, your key word is submit. All right, submit. Uh, Super unpopular in our culture to put that word out there to women, right? Super unpopular. That's, that's not politically correct to use the word submit. And fortunately, the culture is not our authority. The Lord is, and this is his word. And so we're going we're gonna to dig into his word to hear what the Lord says about that. Okay, verse 22, wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This everything in Scripture uh, is everything relating to the husband's legitimate authority over his wife. It doesn't make him the Lord, and it doesn't make him uh, supreme in all things, but it does mean that he is the authority over his wife. So this word submit gets a really bad rap in our our culture. What does this word mean? Uh, This word that's translated submit is a a word that was used as a a military term that meant to subject yourself or to subordinate yourself, to place yourself under. It doesn't say and it doesn't mean, husband, make sure your wife submits to you. This is addressed to wives. What it says is wives Submit yourselves to your husband. It's not a forced submission. It is a willing choice that a godly woman, a woman after Christ's heart, makes out of her submission to Christ. It's a voluntary, regular practice to say, I choose to put myself under my husband's authority and to yield to him. And some of yours are sitting here this morning might be thinking, well, you haven't met my husband. There's no way you can submit to this guy. All right, your husband may be a difficult guy, and if he's sitting next to you, don't be elbowing him right now. But the fact is that the Lord says that it's not based on whether or not your husband is a good man, and it's actually not even based on whether or not your husband is a godly man. It's based on whether or not your husband is your husband. Ephesians 5.18, if we backed up a few verses, uh, we're, we're told not to get drunk on wine. That's debauchery. 
but be filled with or be controlled by the Spirit. A couple verses later in verse 21, what is the result of being controlled by the Holy Spirit for a Christian? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When I put myself in submission to the Lord, I will find myself submitting to other believers, uh, to others around us. And so the natural outworking of God's spirit and control of my life is that I am predispositioned to submit to those around me. The act of submission uh, is something that God wants in all of our lives. Here's the principle, okay, for anybody under authority. Those under authority need to submit themselves to the ones who have authority over them. Submission to Christ enables us to be able to submit to other people. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head, the authority of every man is Christ. Every man, if your husband is, is subject to Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. The, uh, he is the first one to whom she's accountable to in the home. And then it says, and the head of Christ is God. Notice here that uh, the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, is part of this. He is under a headship and authority. Completely equal with the Father, completely equal with the Spirit, Jesus Christ is under the authority of God the Father. Being under authority and being in submission is not a lesser value or a lesser worth. It is a different role. And that's what scripture teaches. So wise, what God is saying to you is not that you are somehow less valuable, less intelligent, less capable, less competent. He's saying, I'm putting you in a position that I want you to be led in this area by this person. And don't worry, the person who's leading you, he's being led. And don't worry, the person who's leading him, he's being led. The only person who doesn't have an authority above him is God the Father. Some of you are saying, well, yeah, um, you know, I, I understand that, but the verse you read about being filled with the Spirit is talking about Christians. What about somebody whose husband maybe doesn't know the Lord yet, and, and he just he's not there? He's really hard to live with. Well, the Lord tells us that uh, there's still submission that needs to happen. I want to just turn you quick to First Peter chapter 3. And the Apostle Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to, submit to, your husbands, so that... Even if some do not obey the word, they are not living under the authority of God's word, either men who aren't saved yet or men who profess Jesus, but they're not leading well at all in the home, that they're still to be subject to them so that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, by the submission of their wives. Wife, if you want to see Christ change your husband and change your family, it starts with fulfilling your biblical role to submit to that person as your authority in everything that is not against what God's clear will is. If, now, if they're trying to lead you into sin, lead you away from the Lord, you don't have to submit to that leadership because that defies the Lord's leadership in your life. But everything else, that's what God says. John Piper, Pastor John Piper and Wayne Grudem wrote together a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and they speak about what is submission then? What does this look like in marriage? And let me just read to you their words here. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. That's why scripture calls a wife a helper. He needs help to lead well. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. 
Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. So when we get this wrong is when we assume that submission means I am a doormat, I am a slave to this person, and they can tell me to do anything and I must do it without question. He's not your absolute authority, but he's your authority under Christ's authority. And so if a husband leads a wife away from Christ, she needs to not follow that leadership because it's leading in directly the opposite direction that the Lord has called that husband to lead. The most important question that a woman could uh, and should answer before they ever say I do, before they ever say yes to a marriage proposal is, am I willing to yield to this man as Christ's representative in my life for the rest of my life? That's the most important question you can answer. So if you're in this room, you're not married yet, and you're a woman, you need to be thinking when, when somebody asks you that question, you need to have thought through, am I willing to yield to this person as Christ's representative in my life? for the rest of my life? And if the answer is yes, then, then that's a, a good sign that you can say yes to that person. Uh, the, uh, the chairman of our elders in my, in my home church, his name is Dave. He's got three kids. Two, his two sons are married. His daughter is not yet married. She's approaching 40 and has had several different uh, dating relationships, a prospective would-be husbands. And uh, he told me that as he would date these men, um, sorry, she would date these men, he would ask her two questions. He would ask her two questions every time. He would say to her, she's a strong person, a strong leader, got a, very intelligent. He would say, is he able to spiritually lead you? Okay, does he even have the capacity to lead you? And then secondly, are you willing to let him lead you? Are you willing to submit to his leadership over you? And uh, that's a great question for every gal to ask. Every woman needs to ask that question. Is he able to lead me? And am I willing to submit to his leadership over me? All right, the biblical bottom line in understanding marriage relationship, what does it look like uh, in a marriage, is that men and women are equal under God. One is not more valuable or more important than the other. They're equal under God in every single way, but they have different God-given roles. Wives, if you long to have a Christ-like family, you want to see God change your family, God has a key word for you, and that key word is to submit. Submit to your husband's authority uh, in your home. All right? Uh, men, we're going to move on to you. If you are currently married and you bear the honorable title of husband, raise your hand so we know who's in this room, okay? You're a husband in this room. God has a word for, for you. God has a word for me in this as well. Uh, rather than pointing the finger about what your wife is supposed to do, again, it's always back to us. What am I supposed to do? Husbands, your key word is love. Your key word is love. Verse 25 in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. And he goes on to say how? First example is, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Colossians 3.19 says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Scripture calls men again and again, love your wives, love your wives. Yes, respect them. Yes, serve them. There's so many ways that we can show love, but the, the key word that is underlined that is so important for the heart of your wife is that you love her in the way that Jesus loved the church. It's a sacrificial laying your life down love. Well, why would I do that? What's the end goal of why I would love her the way Christ did the church? Because Christ laid down his life for the church for the same reason he wants you to lay down your life for your wife. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, being set apart, set her apart spiritually, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The reason Jesus laid down his life sacrificially for all of us, the church, is so that we could be set apart for him, sanctified for him. The reason that God calls husbands to lay down their lives in the way that they love their wives is to help her grow in holiness, to be set apart for Jesus Christ. Husband, why would you want to love your wife in this way? Because you want to see her set apart for the Lord. The greatest treasure that you can have is to love your wife in a way that she flourishes spiritually so that when you're done spending time on this planet with your wife and ultimately she goes back to be with Jesus, you present to him a more spiritually beautiful, set-apart bride. Verse 28 says, uh, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself by caring Uh, attending to the needs. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes his own body, just as Christ does the church. What do you do when you're hungry, men? You eat. What do you do when you're thirsty? Get something to drink. What do you do when you're in pain, you're bleeding, you're injured? You go try to address that need and take care of it. You nourish it. You watch out for it. If you've ever had a significant injury, you know life changes because a part of you is wounded. And when that happens, uh, everything that you do is to protect and to restore that weak spot. And so if your wife has a need, if she has a, a weakness, if she has a hurt or a wound in some way, everything changes. You lay down your life to help carry that burden. You lay down your life to help heal something that's broken there for her. That's what God calls us to do as men. Why? Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a quote from Genesis 2.24. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, men, is a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the body of Christ, for the church. What did he do? He laid down his life even though he he didn't have to, he chose to for her growth, her sanctification. And then Paul summarizes here in verse 33, kind of the husband-wife thing. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the husband see that she respects her husband. Respect is the word in place of submit. What does submission look like for a wife? It means respecting your husband. And what does love look like for a husband? It means laying your life down so that she would be sanctified. Jesus' heart for all of us as followers is to be set apart for the Lord, to be sanctified. It's just a fancy word that means to be set apart. Jesus prayed this heartfelt prayer in the garden before he went to the cross. In John 17, his prayer for you and for me was, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He wants us to be set apart because of his word. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. God wants to change us all. Husbands, if if you're looking at your wife and you want her to be more beautiful before the Lord, sanctify her by sacrificially living in front of her. Uh, Again, in this passage, notice that this is addressed to husbands, not wives. So wives, this is not God telling you to make sure your husband's loving you well. If he's not loving you well, you go back to what does he say for you to do? Do your best to submit to a man who's not loving you well. Husbands, if you, uh, if, if you know the Lord, if you heard this word this morning, hear God's word to you. Make sure you're loving your wife well. Above all, make sure she feels loved 
sacrificially so that you're pushing her towards Jesus in a loving way. In the first century, this was kind of like um, unheard of, this kind of talk. All right, God doesn't care about the values of our culture where they diverge from his values. This is super countercultural for the Apostle Paul to be saying these words to a husband and wife. He's taking the culture's view of a woman and he's changing it to a biblical view of a woman. The wife is transformed from an unimportant uh, possession that exists only to meet the needs and the wants of a husband in that culture. And and the Lord says, that's not what I created woman for. I created her now to be the object of your affection, to nurture her towards Christ likeness. She's now a person like she's always been, but before you, I want you to see her as a person who has inherent worth and value and dignity. And because of that, lay your life down for her to help her to grow in Christ. She should be the focus of your concern, husband. So instead of the husband demanding that his wife live for him, the husband, because of Christ's example, begins to live for her. What can I do to help my wife grow in Christ? Rather than keeping her under his fist and under his authority and under his foot, he seeks to lift her up and to help her to flourish. Principle here about Christian headship is Christian headship lifts the wife up as the rightful object of a husband's loving concern. A wife should never feel put down by a husband who's loving her well. About 1,600 years ago, a follower of Jesus by the name of John Chrysostom, uh, he said this as he was speaking about what it is to love your wife. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit because of the archaic language. You have seen the measure of obedience. Now hear also the measure of love. Do you wish your wife to obey you as the church is to obey Christ? That's what the call is in Scripture. If you want to see that happen, man, then have a concern for her as Christ had for the church. And if it's necessary for you to give your life for her or to be cut into 10,000 pieces or to endure any other suffering, do not refuse it. And if you suffer like this, you don't even do what Christ has done for you. For you do so, being already united to her, meaning your wife. But Christ, he did so for those who treated him with hatred. Someone might want to control a servant by fear, but even the servant could run away. But the companion of your life, the mother of your children, you ought to bind to you, not by fear and threats, but by love and loyalty. Husbands, bind your wife to you, not by fear, not by your authoritative rule, but by love. Marriage provides this first example of mutual submission in the body of Christ. Wife submitting to her husband uh, in, in an expression of her submission to Christ, and then the husband loving his wife, uh, even as Christ loved the church. Both of them serve the husband by being a Christ-like head and representative, and the wife by being uh, the respond by responding in submission to the one who lifts her up and holds her beside him. So husbands, if you're longing to see Christ change your family, if you want to see a Christ-like family, your key, your key word is love. Love. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. We're going to look at now the second picture in the home. What does it look like for children to their parents and parents to their children. And so if you're in the category of a child who's still living in your home, you might be, you know, most of the senior high teenagers I know are gone, but if you're in the home, I don't even know if we have any 
But if you're in the home today and you bear the title of children, raise your hand here. All right, got a couple? Okay, still under your parents' authority. Okay. So the Lord has a special word for you today too. All right, we're now in verse 1 of chapter 6. All right, here's what the Lord says to you. What's your key word? Well, children, your key word is obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. All right, this is a stronger expression than submit like a wife is to a husband. This is, uh, this is more than just being subject under. It's a, an assumed idea of placing yourself all the time because they are your absolute authority on this earth as far as humanly speaking. God's call for kids is to obey their parents. Are parents always right? No. No, they're not. Parents are called to obey. What is obedience about? Uh, Obedience, let me give you a picture of this. Uh, So uh, people who take the gospel to different cultures overseas, missionaries, uh, some of them work in translation or have to work in translation to try to get the concepts in Scripture into words that they understand because they may not even have a word for it. So this missionary translator was trying to look for a a cultural equivalent of the idea of submission and and submitting and obeying, trying to, like, what does obedience look like in their culture? It wasn't a, a value in their culture. So one day the missionary was going back to his hut from the village and he had a dog uh, there and he whistled for his dog and immediately the dog just comes bolting towards him and following him and went right alongside him and, and stood right there next to his master. And so one of the, one of the people in that village uh, saw what had happened and uh, the old native seeing this, he admiringly said in their native tongue, your dog is not obedient because they didn't have that word. Your dog is all ear. And the missionary knew he had his word, his translation for what does it mean to obey. And so in their passage, children be all ear to your parents was something that made sense to them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's being all ear. When mom or dad says something, if they're not asking you to sin, it should be wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, I'm going to do that. Why? Because it pleases the Lord. This is right. The basic reason for kids to honor their parents, by the way, again, notice it doesn't say parents, make sure you're, now that's part of a parent's raising, but God has a word directly to them that as they grow up, their word is, I want to obey the Lord and I want to uh, honor God by honoring my parents. So it's right before God. It's not right because someone did a study and said, hey, kids obey their parents in life, you know, succeed better. It's based on the word of God that God declares this is right. God put them in a role below. God puts you in a role if you're a child in your home. God puts you under your parents' authority to protect you. Your parents may not always be right. They certainly are not going to be perfect and they're fellow sinners with you. But God has put them in your life because they're there for your protection to point you towards Jesus so that you can get a picture imperfectly, but you can get a picture of Jesus through them. Verse 2 goes on to say to, to you, those of you who are children, honor your father and mother. And this is a commandment from the Old Testament, part of what's called uh, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land, Exodus twenty twelve. Obedience is the right attitude behind the right act of obedience. It's having the right heart behind it and having the right action to go with it. That's honoring mom or dad. 
It means to value them highly, to hold them in highest regard and respect. Uh, it's a word that, that's used about uh, conveying reverence or how precious something is or even honor regarding God the Father or Jesus Christ the Son. In fact, God the Father uses that term about Jesus Christ the Son, about honoring him. And that's the same thing that God is calling children toward their parents. Honor your parents. Obey your parents. Why would you want to do that? Uh, parents are to be obeyed and honored because to do so is to obey and honor the Lord. Kids, do you want to obey and honor the Lord in your life? If you've come to know him, then I hope that's your heart desire. If you want to honor the Lord, honor your parents. This isn't just like the heavy-handed religious control technique so that parents can keep their kids in line. It's something that really pleases the heart of God. Do you want God's blessing? Do you want God's protection in your life? If you do, then honor, honor your parents and obey them. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. So son or daughter, if you're someone longing to see Jesus transform your family, it starts with you. Submitting, uh, obeying, honoring your parents. All right, last, uh, last group in here is parents. If you are a parent with kids still living in your homes, all right, I still am. Parent with kids still in your home. God has a word for you too in how he wants to transform your home and make it a more Christ-like home. Uh, the end of verse 4, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So instead of a here's what you do, what about, what about this action? He's saying don't do this action. And uh, I think it's because there's a unique susceptibility for a parent, for a father in particular, to use that authority to push down in a harsh way those that they have authority over their kids. Anyone that has authority is susceptible to abusing that authority. Most of you know that because you operate in a, in a planet where there's government. You see people in authority and you watch them abuse it and it gets frustrating. The same is true in a home. All right, dads, you have a unique authority and you could be harsh to somebody who's under you, to your kids. Uh, Colossians 3.19, read this a little bit earlier. Husbands, love your wives and tax right on there and do not be harsh with them. Somebody who has authority uh, can use that authority to be harsh. Verse 21 of Colossians 3 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. All right, dads, if we are too harsh with our kids, if we're too strict, if we're, if we're too demanding, you're going to break your kid's spirit in a way that doesn't position them to love the Lord or to love you. You just end up with somebody with a broken spirit who, who feels worthless and just wants to walk away, wants to rebel. All right, so I said this is about parents, all right? And you said, well, this, this just read fathers. You just read it, Gary. It said fathers do not provoke. You know, so some of you moms are like, this doesn't apply to me. You need to know that this word fathers uh, actually means fathers and mothers, right? It's the plural for father. And just like with brothers, so a lot of times you'll see in the New Testament, brothers, this. He's not just writing to the males who know Jesus. It's males and females. They didn't have a separate word for brothers and sisters, so they would just pluralize brothers in their culture. They knew that meant brothers and sisters. The same is true here for fathers. Uh, the Greek word is pateras, all right? The plural of fathers, pateras, uh, don't be harsh with your kids. Don't exasperate your kids. Don't drive them to anger. Don't provoke them. Here's another use of that word pateras in Hebrews chapter 11. Talking about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his pateras. 
Okay, we know we only had one dad. He wasn't hidden by multiple dads, hidden by his parents. So Moses was hidden by his pateros because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edicts. And so fathers, meaning parents, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate them. That's a, a great opportunity for failure. If you've parented a child for more than about 30 seconds, I can pretty much guarantee that you have been exasperated with your children, and because of that and trying to control them, you've exasperated them. You've put too many rules, too many commands. You're frustrated. You've raised your voice. You've yelled at them. You've disciplined them in anger. Most everyone in this room can go, I've blown it as a parent. Uh, It's easy to exasperate our kids. And sometimes it's out of like a really good heart. You just want them to get it right. And so you're not just correcting them, but you're saying it again. And then you're saying it in a different way. And then you're saying another thing. And, and it becomes a long lecture when all they needed to hear was, was the redirection. We can exasperate our kids by putting too high of a standard for them to be able to keep in that moment. The Lord doesn't reveal all of our sin and all of his commandments to us at once because we couldn't handle that. He walks us patiently along. That's what he calls parents to do as well. When our oldest was maybe, I don't know, four or five years old, was in the backyard trying to teach him how to hit a a wiffle ball, and I was trying to give him instruction. My my intentions were good, but I wanted to make sure he stood right. Then I wanted to make sure he was holding the bat right and putting his hands in the right place and make sure he was turning sideways and looking at the ball and keeping his elbow up and swinging through and rolling his wrists. And, And my son Josiah, in the moment of instruction after instruction after instruction, he was so excited to do this. He's like, he put the bat down. He goes, Dad, I don't want to do this anymore. I blew it. I totally exasperated my son because I wanted him to get it right, but I didn't take into account what can he handle at this age. One instruction and let him swing, and then you can build on that. Parents, sometimes we mean really well, but we overwhelm our kids with all the things that we know that they should do, and we just need to lead them one step at a time patiently, just like the Lord does for us. Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 6 says, but bring them up. So it gives us a negative, you know, don't do this, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents, our, our words are bring them up. It's, it's uh, intentionality. It's a direction. How are we going to do that in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord? So we've got discipline. We've got instruction. What's discipline? Discipline is a correction, uh, sometimes called a punishment, a chastening. So this is the part of parenting that is super unpopular in our culture right now. It's learning that molds character and enforces right behavior. To discipline someone means to put them in a state of good order so that they function in the way intended. God wants your children to function in a certain way. He wants them to know his goodness. He wants them to know evil and how to stay away from that. And discipline is a part of helping them to be able to do that. Discipline, in spite of the popular misconception, is not inherently stern or harsh. It's always corrective with a view to restoration. The Bible translators chose the word disciple as an appropriate term to one who learns by following. We are disciples of Christ. There's discipline, correction that's involved in that. All right, most people tend to feel pretty strongly on the issue of discipline when it comes to spanking. Either very much don't you ever touch your child that's abuse to 
if you don't touch your, uh, touch your child in a, in, a, in a right way in discipline, they're never going to get it right. Most people feel really strongly. Scripture, and we're not going to go into this today, but Scripture says that there's an appropriate place in the home for corporal punishment, for discipline that involves touch. There's an appropriate place for that. There's also definitely an inappropriate. Uh, some parents are just afraid, if I take that step, that my kid's not going to feel that I'm loving or, or that I'm somehow going to wound my kid in a way that they can't be restored. All right, there's a proper way to do it. Even the world is beginning to recognize this. They'll see the studies and they'll reject them, but the world is beginning to recognize this. A study done back in January of 2010, uh, Calvin College in Grand Rapids found three things about kids who remember growing up being spanked. Here's the three things they found. Kids who remember being spanked grow up doing better in school than those who don't remember being spanked. They probably weren't spanked. Kids who remember being spanked volunteer more. They're willing to get out there and say, I'm willing to help something even though I don't have to. And thirdly, they found that kids who remember being spanked are more optimistic than unspanked children. They actually have a better self-esteem, a better outlook, more optimistic because they've learned right from wrong. They've learned some things are bad and need to be rejected. They've learned consequences, and they've learned respect for authority. They're more optimistic about life because they understand that there is safety and protection underneath God's loving rules. And, And Satan would love to have children believe that any kind of rule or restriction is going to keep them from experiencing something great, and every rule should be broken. And the Lord says, when you break rules, you're actually going to be deeply wounding yourself and often other people too. So that's what discipline is. Bring them up in the discipline. And secondly, instruction. Uh, instruction is, is teaching. It's, it's giving the right information. It's, it's information about what correct behavior is. It's advising someone about the dangerous consequences of some happening or some action. It's letting them know, don't run in the road. You could get run over. Don't stick that metal thing in a light socket. You could get electrocuted. Don't talk back to that person in authority. There might be a consequence. The list goes on. It's letting you know there are consequences for wrong behavior so that they grow up knowing right from wrong and so that they can choose the right. They can choose the Lord and his loving rules in their lives as well. Parents, if you're longing for a Christ-like family, If you're here today, I think you are. Uh, Your words from the Lord are bring them up. If you want to see your kids change, bring them up. It's going to take some intentionality to discipline your kids well and to give them instruction. And if you're lazy about it, the world will take over and it will give them instructions that are exactly the opposite of what your heart and God's heart is for your kids. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, Love your wives, children, obey your parents, and parents, bring up your children in the Lord. These are the keys that every family needs in order to be a Christ-like family.